Welcome to a brand new season of the Context Matters podcast. I am your host, Cindy Parker. I like to gather around the table with a wide variety of people who have different life experiences from me and talk about God, Bible, theology, and other tangentially related subjects. Your voice is always welcomed around this table. You can reach out to me through my Narrative of Place website. And I'm so excited. Today's guest is Dr. Gordon McConville. I cannot believe it took me this long to get him on the podcast. Dr. McConville was my advisor through my PhD and continues to be one of my all-time favorite scholars. I really wanted to study with him because he's done a lot of work on Deuteronomy, and I love Deuteronomy and wanted to do my work on Deuteronomy, so that was a natural choice. So many quotes in my own work are from him. Dr. McConville is the Emeritus Professor in Old Testament at the University of Gloucestershire and continues to be a prolific writer. His commentary on the book of Isaiah, or as he would say, Isaiah, with Baker Press was released last year. But then he wrote another book called The Suffering Servant, Isaiah 53 for the Life of the Church. And I thought, ah, perfect. This is the time to get him on the podcast. Isaiah 53 is hard and beautiful. Christian audiences sometimes read it and think immediately of Jesus, even as if Isaiah was predicting Jesus. But there's so much more to it than that. And for Isaiah 53, well, context matters. But first, let's find out more about the context in which Gordon McConville was raised and how he ended up doing a PhD in biblical studies. Lean in and enjoy the conversation. Well, I grew up in a Christian home. I was one of three brothers, the eldest of three. We were church-going people. I was surrounded by the Bible from my infancy. So I have quite vivid early memories of the Sunday school we went to. We had two ladies who remain quite clearly in my mind. One of them was called Harriet. One of them was called Muriel. I always remember Harriet's large hat. And uh, they were very faithful people. And I remember they were the first ones who taught me about the Bible. We had a minister who, now this I don't remember myself. My parents told me about it afterwards. He gave us every Sunday the Ten Commandments. So we knew exactly where we were because of uh, his preaching like that. So, you, you, you know, and at home, we were surrounded by Christian thinking, books. Sunday was a very important day. We'd go to church, we'd go to Sunday school, we might go to Sunday school again. So this was in Northern Ireland, which, as you know, <laughs> has quite strong religious history and traditions and practice. We've it was Protestant, of course. We were Presbyterians. Uh, it was, in a way, it was kind of Bible Belt, you know, where I lived and grew up. And I suppose it was only when I grew up and came and lived in England that I was able to look back on my experience in, in Northern Ireland and see it as a particular kind of culture, and indeed Christian culture, in which I'd grown up. I mean, it was good to step out of that into a kind of broader Christian world, but also uh, it was very good to have had that as a place in which I was nurtured and in which I found faith and grew in faith. The particular like Irishness of the Protestant tradition that you grew up in, 
Did that have a strong influence? I mean, did that change when you went and did your studies over in England? I mean, was there quite a distinctness there? I mean, I guess I always think that there is, but maybe more politically than religiously. I don't know. You have a particular view of the world. And I suppose everybody grows up with a certain kind of view of the world. And when you grow up, you're able to reflect back on it with both appreciation and and critically. And I suppose that would be my case. I mean, to have an English view after you're growing up in Northern Ireland is is a kind of a, an opening of the eyes, an awakening. And you see how other people view you and where you came from. So, and realizing that Christianity indeed is a much broader phenomenon than the one that you knew or how you knew it when you were growing up, maturing. So I think all my life I've been kind of growing with and growing out of some of the things that I grew up with. Irishness, you see, I mean, Northern Ireland, as I say, there's a Bible belt in Northern Ireland. A lot of Christian people in Britain more broadly have a some sort of background from over there. Huh. In most Christian walks of life, there'll be somebody from Northern Ireland, even though it's quite a small area in terms of population, really about less than two million people. And also, you know, on what what used to be called the mission field, I'm not sure if we're allowed to call it that these days, but, you know, in places where there's serious development work going on in the world, there'll often be people from there as well. So I think I have so much to be thankful for, for having grown up in that part of the world and that sort of culture. I was, my parents, my grandparents, you know, these were good Christian people, and I'm grateful for. What is it or when did you feel like you wanted to study the Bible for your education and ultimately do PhD work in biblical literature? You know, it was when I was at university. I went to university to study modern languages and did that. First of all, I, I went to Cambridge. And while I was there, I found people who were studying theology. And I thought, I never knew you could do that. <laughs> uh, I thought it was only for people who were going to be ministers, you see, in their special places where they went and did that. And so the thought was sown then. During my time, I felt a call to the ministry. And so I went from doing my modern language degree in Cambridge to Edinburgh to do theology. And I was going to be a Presbyterian minister. That's a thing that never happened because, you know, one thing kept leading to another. And I had a certain perception of what I was being called to do, which kept being slightly modified until the point where I never got ordained as a Presbyterian minister and got sidetracked or sidelined or siphoned off or something into teach, just teaching the Bible. Old Testament, well, when I was doing theology, you've got everything, all the range of theology there. Edinburgh University was a very good department, good place to do it. It was the Old Testament that made me think, hmm, I want to do that. Ah. I enjoyed the Hebrew and just the whole world that the Old Testament opened up with all its poetry, its narrative, its, its big characters. It was just utterly fascinating and huge. I thought I could spend my life in that. So, yeah, I specialized there in that in Edinburgh in Old Testament and then went on and did a, a PhD in it. And that also was fortuitous. I mean, I didn't really think I'd have the opportunity to do that. But anyway, I'll not go into the details of that, but the opportunity did come. I was with Gordon Wenham, 
you know, I was privileged to have him as my supervisor. He wanted to, he tried and nudged me into Leviticus. And I sort of had a look at Leviticus and thought, mm, not sure I want to go there. <laughs> about Deuteronomy. <laughs> it's something about its language, its kind of discourse appealed to me. And in a way that the uh, laws of Leviticus didn't. I mean, there's lots in Leviticus to love that I just wasn't there. I wasn't there. My actual thesis was on laws about, I call it cultic laws. So it was, it was basically chapters 12 to six, twelve to 16, 18, 26. It was all the laws that have to do with sacrifice, offerings, priesthood. And what was fascinating to me about all that was the way in which these laws seem to have their own logic, their own idiom, compared with Leviticus and other laws of the Pentateuch. And it fascinated me. Why are they in this form? And, of course, that draws you into the whole world of Deuteronomy, as you know, which is very beguiling. And it seemed to be integrated into that Deuteronomic way of thinking about the world, which, you know, I found not a lot of people had really explored that. And so it was there to do. And I, I enjoyed doing it. So you, in more recent years, have gravitated towards Isaiah. So what is it about that massive book that pulled you in and captured your attention? Well, it was a pilgrimage from Deuteronomy to Isaiah. Of course, I, I looked at other things along the way. I mean, there's Jeremiah. It kept me busy for some time. And I wrote Joshua. In fact, Joshua is a book that I, I don't seem to be able entirely to shake off. People keep asking me to do things on Joshua. And in fact, I've got another thing to do by this June on Joshua, which I need to start doing one of these days. So there's a lot. But I've always taught Isaiah. I've always thought of it as a kind of pinnacle, a kind of something you write your last book on. Huh. <laughs> well, maybe, who knows? Um, so I was pleased to be asked to co-edit with Mark Boda a series on the prophets for Baker. And when we were deciding who should do what, both Mark and Jim Kinney looked at me and said, how would you like to write Isaiah? And I, <laughs> and I thought, okay, I can't say no to that. And I had, oh, you know, five, six, seven years, which were you know, quite hard going, but wonderful years writing this commentary. I would tell people I was writing commentary in Isaiah, and they would say, the whole book? And uh, <laughs> I would say, hmm, yes. <laughs> but actually, I wouldn't have had it any other way. It was a wonderful experience. If you're a regular listener of Context Matters, you've probably heard it before that the name of a book in the Bible does not always indicate who authored the text. So when we get to the composition of Isaiah, the person, the prophet who's named Isaiah, and then the book that also has his name, well, both are very complex characters. So before we get further into the text and before we get to Isaiah 53, I asked Gordon if he would give us the general context of Isaiah. And first, let's talk about the person, and then we will go into the context from which the literature arose. Isaiah, the person, I'm sorry, you're saying Isaiah, I'm saying Isaiah. It's just my, I can't help it. <laughs> That's the way it comes out with me. But, you know, you must do it your way too. Anyway, <laughs> we're talking about the same person. 
We don't know all that much about Isaiah the person. Now, he does appear in a, a couple of places in the narrative in the book of Isaiah, also in books of Kings, but he emerges less forcefully or clearly than particularly Jeremiah. Still, there are things we know. He clearly had the ear of kings, which not everybody had in the old days. So he must have been a person of some standing in Israel, uh, in Judah particularly. Um, he must have been very formidable. I mean, because he prepared to take on a king and stand and give him the word of the Lord, which might not have been very welcome. I mean, sometimes with Hezekiah, there is a, a salvation oracle, so he would have been welcomed then. <laughs> but with Ahaz, not so much. And he was prepared to stand out. And, and you know, you have that narrative of him in Isaiah chapter 20, where he is acting out, are going into exile and walks naked, you know, for a period of time with some others and quite how naked or what exactly that meant, you know, I, one imagines. But that's something rather powerful, isn't it? And to do it over a period of time. So he was his own person. Here's somebody who had a standing in, in court circles, but was prepared to be quite outside, to stand out from the crowd, if you like. So he's, he was very courageous. He was also, and this is extraordinary, really, I mean, he was also a very gifted poet. I mean, that is one of the extraordinary things about the Old Testament prophets in general, maybe some more than others, that they really knew how to use words. And some of the poetry in his eyes is just wonderful. So he was an extraordinary character. I was just going to say, what about the literature that holds his name? When we think of this book, I mean, we modern day approach it as one singular book. But when we really get into it, there's different characteristics in the book. So can you introduce us to that? <laughs> well, it's right to read it as a book, one book. It comes to us as a book. And that's clearly been the, it's been known as a book from ancient times. You know, the Qumran scroll, the most famous earliest text of Isaiah, it's one book. Yeah, I've seen it in the Israel Museum. I presume it's still on there. Uh, still has its own display. The shrine of the book. That's, yes. And you can see how I think it's after chapter 30, 33, there's a little gap, which just means, I don't know, I've run out of scroll. I need to start another one. But right in the middle of it. So it's one book, but composed, I think, most people think, I know some people don't think this, but it seems to me anyway, I'm convinced by the idea that it was composed over a very long time, and there are different hands at work. And the figure of Isaiah stands over it as a powerful influence on all the other parts. I haven't come across a convincing way of really tracing how that happened. But nevertheless, there are identifiable sections. And one of them is, oh, I mean, I think one of the important things to say is that the book reflects, comes out of some of the most formative periods in Israel's history. So that it starts in the Assyrian period, it moves clearly into the Babylonian period, and then clearly again into the Persian period. So that represents the big powers under which Israel and Judah lived out their lives, and therefore stages all the urgent issues that the people faced in those periods. 
And for this book, this very reflective, this very prophetic book, to be able to think about all these great phases of history together in such a way as to show that this was all the work of the Lord, that he was in this at every stage, I think that is a remarkable achievement. The composition of the Book of Isaiah is an incredible achievement. Who did that? We don't know. There were a lot of very creative, godly people behind it. It is interesting the being able to set the political context or like these big empires in the background of this text. And then to think of that context and then focus on what is traditionally called the servant songs in Isaiah. There's kind of a cluster of them that show up together. Can you introduce us to what the servant songs are and maybe some of the characteristics of them? of which Isaiah 53 is a part. Well, they come out of the book that is commonly known as Second Isaiah, so chapters 40 to 55, where the setting is evidently Babylonian and therefore exilic. They come out of the period of a great, the great trauma, perhaps, in Israel Judah's history. By this time, actually, there is no Israel. I mean... Israel as northern kingdom has gone, and it's only Judah. Judah then, which is basically the two southern tribes, and it undergoes the tremendous trauma of large parts of its population being deported to Babylon, raising all kinds of deep questions about its existence. Who are we? Are we still the covenant people of the Lord Yahweh? Is Yahweh still going to be faithful to all his promises to us as Israel? There's a sense in which the remnant of Judah still stands for Israel, as it were, the historic people, with all the promises that come to them, the covenant status, and so on and so on. So here they are in exile, no land, no king, and who are we? Now, in that context, it's remarkable that they survived as a people. I mean, that is one of the most remarkable things about the whole story of the Bible. They survived to go back, many of them, back to the historic land, a new king arises, Persian king, and that's his policy. But nevertheless, the fact that they were there still as a cohesive, identifiable people is amazing. Now, one of the things which presumably kept them going was their possession of words of the Lord that they would have carried with them, and also new words. And among them, this idea of Israel itself as servant. Now, the servant of the Lord idea is not new in the exilic period. Israel as servant is new. The idea of Israel as servant arises in this part of the book of Isaiah. <laughs> and so chapter 41, verse 8 is the place where you come across that for the first time. And within that, well, there is a development idea of the, uh, a development of the idea of Israel as servant. Within that, you have some of these special texts, which have been identified or designated servant songs. Used to be thought that they were, as literature, completely separate. They might have existed separately, maybe as a group of poems, which were then inserted into forty fifty-five. Nowadays. It's much more common to think of them as integrated into the developing literature itself. 
the discourse itself. Yet there's a distinctiveness there. Um, in 42.1, the Lord says, see my servant. And it is clearly Israel at that point. And it's talking about a servant who is going to bring justice to the nations. You get something very similar then in chapter 49. In chapter 50, the servant speaks about his own experience at this point. You're beginning to think, just beginning to think this might be an individual because it's the sort of thing that you can imagine individuals saying, this is somebody who's giving his back to be beaten and therefore is suffering, but is also carrying the word of the Lord to those who will listen. That's for chapter 50, right? Verses 4 to 9. I'm not giving all the verses all the time here. It was, four, I think it's 42, 1 to 6, 49, 1 to 6, 50, 4 to 9. Then you come to 53. Now, there's something very remarkable at 53. It begins again with the words, see my servant, actually in chapter 52, verse 13. And then you get the point. Servant does not speak in this section. He is spoken about. But it looks like a development of the personality that we've seen developing, not only in the wider discourse, but also in these particular so-called songs or poems. Well, I think there's something interesting in these songs that is this, sometimes it seems quite clear that it's a collection of people, the servant, as all of Israel, like you mentioned. And then sometimes it hints at a singular person. And sometimes it goes back and forth between the two. So, which means that when people are reading these texts, they're interpreting the suffering servanthood either looking for a historical figure that fits that or looking at the people as an analogy, the servant. Do you think it's purposely vague? Do you think because it's playing with the both and instead of either or? I think that's one of the very powerful things about it. I think you're absolutely right. There's never a point, I think, where the individual interpretation or view of it is clearly has clearly outgrown the corporate. I mean, one of the curious ones is in 49, you seem to have a figure who has a ministry to Israel and yet is still called Israel. Yeah. That paradox seems to be built into that particular text. In 53, it's very easy to regard this as a picture of an individual. But yet, people have maintained a corporate reading, even of 53. And I think that is simply a fact of life in reading and interpreting the Bible, that we will read it in different ways, depending on who we are. As Christian readers of the Bible, we are bound to see a connection between Isaiah 53 and Jesus. That's part of who we are and what we've received and the way in which we read the Bible. But I think, I think we don't own the text, and Jewish readers are entitled to come to it and say, no, we can understand that of ourselves and of the Jewish experience, and we can read that corporately, and they're entitled to do that. And nobody can really say that's wrong. Mm, right. I think the text does allow for multiplicity. 
Next week, Dr. Gordon McConville and I will explore more of Isaiah 53 in particular, and then what the New Testament writers are doing as they pull from that text and connect it with Jesus. I'm so glad you joined us today around the podcast table. All of this is possible only because of a stellar team made up of people like David and Michelle Kaufman and Robert Lundberg. They are part of my Patreon team, and they are the people who financially support this project and keep it viable year after year. They are also the reason I don't go out looking for sponsors of the show and then interrupt each episode with commercials. So we all owe them a huge thank you. And if you want to help support this podcast, there are several ways you can do it. You can share it with friends and family. You can give it a five-star rating on whichever site you listen to it on. Or you can also join the Patreon team. A link is in the episode notes. I produced the episode, Luke Bronner of Odd Parliament did the edits in the final mix, and Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created the music. It is really so good to be with you again. I look forward to our conversation next week. Until then, be safe, take care of each other, and stay curious about the world around you. 